Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. We're back. It's a new year, 2020, and I am again here with UC Ruine. What's up? Life is good. 2020 is looking great already, even though it's slush and rainy outside and a bit dark as well. Um, I am recovering from holidays. So especially in the Nordics, as you well know, we have plenty of holidays. And it seems like it's been an eternal three-week Saturday for me. The kindergarten is closed, school is off. So mostly what I've been doing is spending time with family, being quite a bit outdoors, and and then watching Netflix. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Sounds pretty much what I've done. Um, we do spend a lot of time outdoors. We've gone hiking almost every day. So we go out in the woods or yeah, whatever we can find some, sometimes by the sea. And, you know, this gives, gives us such an energy boost because it's so dark all the time. You yeah. know, it, when we wake up, it's dark. When we go to bed, it's dark. It's always dark. And, and even during daytime, it's just cloudy, which makes it also a bit dark. So <laughs> it's this time of year, it's, we, we try to get out daytime as much as we can. So we go hiking and then in the evenings, I have a bit more energy to, to do my tech stuff. Yeah, maybe for reference, when we say dark, it, it, in, in Helsinki for me, it means that the sun will rise at about 9.30 in the morning and it sets at about 3.30 in the afternoon. I think it's, you guys probably have a bit more sun in Sweden. A little bit more sun where I live in Sweden, yeah. Um, but again, when it goes dark, it goes dark. And yeah. you, you got to soak up those D vitamins when you got into the, into the so-called <laughs> sun, which I will not see now for another three months probably. Um, Alrighty, so, so what do we have as the topic today? So today I want to talk about some common considerations and best practices for Azure developers, um, so, which means pretty much architectural decisions and common thinking with caching and scaling and like resiliency of your applications, because there's this common concept of people getting into cloud development that you just right click publish and then everything just works. But yeah. there's a lot of things you need to consider. So I wanted us to touch on a couple of these things in this episode. Yeah, there's certainly a lot to dive into in here. So I, I guess we might do future episodes on the same topics as well, maybe do a bit deeper on certain topics. Uh, so when was the last time you sat down with a customer or a colleague or another Microsoft partner and, and they wanted to deploy something in on-prem as opposed to deploy something in Azure or some other public cloud? For me, that's been quite some time. I have spent all my time exclusively in the cloud for the last at least four years, five years, uh, maybe even six years. Um, I did used to have a lot of clients working with on-prem SharePoint and SQL servers and Windows servers and uh, things like this, and also custom applications built on that. Um, but a lot of these guys are now moving to the cloud or have moved to the cloud, uh, which also brings some considerations for things you need to change in, in how you develop things and not specifically talking about SharePoint at that uh, point, but in general, when you go into the cloud, you know, traditional on-prem applications, you have this 
um, standard of monolithic centralized applications where you you know have your all your big relational databases and strong consistency on all this stuff. Moving to a modern cloud is more decentralized. You have microservices. Uh, you have something called eventual consistency that you can use. For example, if you use Cosmos DB. Uh, so instead of strong consistency, meaning you make an update and it's pushed out everywhere at once, eventual consistency means that you accept that it will eventually be the same, but it could take a while. And a while is not several days. A while can be a couple of seconds. Uh, but if you have a huge distributed application with a lot of data centers um, or deployments across data centers in different regions, you know, accepting an eventual consistency also in your application architecture makes sense because then you don't have to wait for this to persist in maybe five different regions. You can just make the change and then you know it's going to be eventually consistent. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, so, so going from this traditional on-prem to, to cloud comes with kind of a new line of thinking, but it doesn't have to be too complicated. Um, another thing that I think about a lot is which um, I too did when I moved into cloud development was I was used to like making this occasional huge updates. You made a big update, you had a, a PR that you worked on for three months, uh, which might be a bit exaggerated, but you, you made some really big changes. And then you pushed this out and the entire company was waiting for this one big update in this one application that everyone used. Now with microservices, you have like frequent small updates and yeah, everything is a, you know, a, a bit more decoupled in that sense. So, so there's a, a couple of thoughts around that. Let me, let me pick quickly on, on one of the thoughts here as well. And that's when you move from, let's say, traditional on-premises development, meaning that you might have a local data center, you might have a private cloud, a partner is hosting your servers for you and you have perhaps limited access on those VMs. And once you need to push something in there, let's say your own custom code or a sort of an update to the operating systems or change with any of the settings, oftentimes a lot of the work you would do is still architecture and development related, but you're not really working on those tools and services. You are working uh, with people through processes, filling out forms, asking permissions, perhaps requesting that we need this and this port open from this firewall so that this server can talk to that database server. And that, I think, was, was quite prevalent up until maybe 2016, 2017 in the Nordics and, and what I see in Europe as well. But for the past two, three years, it's more or less that companies that have started using Office 365 they had to also take care of Azure AD. And through Azure AD, it kind of opens up the public cloud for you as a developer and as an architect. And now when you, when you create your solutions, typically you get to start directly on Azure. You don't have to worry that much about the legacy that you might have in the on-prem. And by legacy, I don't mean anything bad. I just mean that you might have something that's been built over the past two decades and you don't really know or care what's running in there anymore. You want to start on a clean slate. You want a new resource group. You need some settings in Azure AD and then you're good to go. Um, 
And and that makes perfect sense. And I see this all the time where kind of a clean slate is what people want to go for because there's a lot of things you had built for your on-prem architectures that may or may not work. Uh, but even if they did work, if you just put them on a VM in a cloud, it may not be how the cloud was designed and it might not give you the most resilient applications. So always thinking about that kind of move over and, and tabula rasa or a clean slate is, is a very good thing. And, and as I always try to think, it's if you know what you need to build or if you know what kind of applications you need, take a step back and try and figure out the, like the decisions of your architecture style and design principles first. So you understand how you can build things using what services and resources that already exist in Azure before you actually start to reinvent the wheel. Exactly. And, and I feel it's important that you step back and think and plan and design up front, but that you do not lock everything down up front, meaning that this has to be an Azure function. This has to be a VM. This has to be uh, an Azure SQL database, but kind of keep those options floating, but still maybe roughly sketch out that, okay, this is what we're thinking. This goes here, this goes there. And then when you start planning and actually creating something, you might realize, oh, there's something new I didn't realize we could use uh, to replace this and this so we get rid of one VM or one database that we didn't really need anymore. Yeah. And, and that makes sense if you know kind of what you need to build. A lot of the times I've also been exposed to like highly agile environments. So you build something for three weeks and you make plans for three months because you kind of know what you need to build. But after those three weeks, you realize everything needs to change because the business requirements changed. So that's also a good thing to keep in mind, uh, not specifically for, for cloud development, but like if you start building microservices and if you start building things that are easier to maintain in such a sense that it's easier to make updates, it's also gonna be easier to be agile. When changes in requirements come in, you're gonna be able to handle them easier. And like you say, don't lock yourself into specifically functions or AKS or Kubernetes or whatever it is, build the applications that can run anywhere. Um, this is also a, a, a key factor to success over time because you can build an application now that handles a couple of things in a queue using a function, but that's not enterprise scale. That's not something that might live for 10 years. Um, so when you design something that needs to run for a long time and that is business critical, all of these things are important to think about upfront. Um, not just making a final plan for how this needs to be built, but also taking into consideration that things will change. New services will come in Azure. Services will change in Azure. Um, there will be different authentication and authorization options and all these things and different scalability options and redundancies. And there's a million things to consider. So just staying agile, I think, is also important. So don't make a solid plan and lock yourself into that, but also embrace the the ever-changing landscape of the cloud. Exactly. So let's let's talk a bit about auto-scaling or, or scalability, if you will. Uh, for VMs, we have certain scalability options for app services. We have auto-scaling as well. Um, functions, for sure, uh, you can have app plans. What about cloud services? Do you still use any of those, like the old school cloud services? Yeah, uh, when you say that, I get the shivers. I have <laughs> wrestled a lot with cloud services in the days. Uh, I'm not actively using them right now, 
but they have built-in auto scaling uh, at the role level. So uh, you can actually configure that also. Um, and also for Azure functions, you have uh, different uh, scaling options. If you use Service Fabric, for example, that also supports auto scaling uh, using virtual machine scale sets, which is the same thing that backs the, the scaling of your Azure virtual machines. So, so when it comes to auto scaling or scaling your applications, there's different ways you can do it. One is using Azure Monitor auto scale. And if you connect your service to Azure Monitor, you can see that uh, scale out to five instances on weekdays and only two instances on Saturdays and Sundays based on load. And if the average CPU load is above or below a specific threshold, you can then increase by one or two or five instances as you require. So this kind of out of scale is something that you can also consider when you build your application. So whether you build a monolith or a microservice, I mean, I hope you build a microservice in, in some sense and not these huge traditional monoliths. But regardless what you build, you can take into consideration that if it's something that requires a lot of memory for a specific task, and you know this upfront, you don't have to rely on Azure Monitor auto-scaling. You can actually implement your own auto-scaling as well. So there's different ways to, to handle that. But it's important to think about how can the application scale, not just based on incoming requests. So this is a common way to scale things. If you have a web app or, or an API, you get 10,000 requests per day. Maybe you only need one instance or two for redundancy. But if you get then a peak of 200,000 requests, 200, requests per day, maybe you need to scale out. Um, automatically. So this is a very common scenario. But sometimes your application is not exposed to the public network and you don't have an API or a website, but your application maybe runs analytics or some kind of analysis or data uh, processing in some sense. And when it does that, it could also hit like heavy resource requirements. So it knows that now I need to analyze this huge chunk of data and I'm going to need additional resources then you can, of course, programmatically request this from Azure and say, you know what, scale out to five instances, process this, and when you're done and you get a message saying everything is finished, you can scale back down. So there's different ways to, to handle scaling. Um, auto scaling using scale sets and the built-in auto uh, scaling mechanisms in Azure Monitor. And also from the developer's perspective, you can do this uh, from your application code or from the client side. Um, so that's pretty cool. And I mean, we can talk about scaling probably for a couple of hours just to to dump everything we have on our minds on this topic. But to keep it short, that's kind of where I want to leave it for now. And we can pick up on that topic also later. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so next up, background jobs on, on running your code on the background. There's, there's multiple possibilities. And back in the day, obviously, I was working... Uh, a lot on Windows and Linux platforms. So, so my go-to background jobs would be a scheduled task in Windows or using uh, cron-based tasks in Linux. And yeah. I don't really use them that much anymore. Occasionally on, on the Raspberry Pi, I, I do use those. I need to execute a script every two minutes and yeah. that's super convenient. But now for running code in the cloud and, and have it trigger somehow, either schedule or based on an event, I often start with web jobs because they're yep. so simple and you can simply pick up what you have, deploy that to your web app and, and have it run. Do you still use web jobs? I do use web jobs occasionally. And it's, it's kind of what you just touched on there. 
um, um, for anything that I already have a web app for. If I have a web app connected or a web app already deployed that, that has a purpose and the background job is for this web app or for the purpose of what this web app does, then I can use a web job for that. Um, if I were just to deploy, if I don't have a web app and I, I need a background job, I would probably rather go with a function uh, because you can use the consumption plan, which is pretty much free uh, until you start using it and you have to use quite a lot of it to uh, you know, start, start being built for it. So if you have simple requirements starting out or building a proof of concept, I would definitely do a um, consumption-based function. Uh, and there you also have support for event-driven triggers. And that's kind of a task that is started in response to any type of event. Um, this is usually with queue triggers. That's very common. Or an HTTP trigger um, in, in Azure Functions. Or if you do schedule-driven events, uh, it's once per day I want to do this. Or every five minutes I need to run this task. And functions can also do that. Um, so there's different ways to, to do that. You also have... Like a lot of people talk about just what, what you and I did now, web jobs and functions, because these are very common and it's a very low threshold to get started with that. But you also have different things. Um, you have Azure Batch, which is a, a platform service that kind of schedules compute intensive work. Uh, and you can run this on a managed collection of virtual machines, right? So if your background job is not just processing a string or calculating something or you know, building stats report from a simple database or whatever, if it's something that is more compute intensive, then Azure Batch might be a better fit because you can then uh, pin this work on underlying VMs and you can choose whatever size of those VMs you need. So you need 16 cores and 64 gigs of RAM. Sure, do that. And then you can scale it, scale it out by instances. You can also use uh, AKS or Azure Kubernetes services that I've used a lot in the past also. Um, it's it's uh, Azure's or Microsoft's managed Kubernetes offering in the cloud. Uh, so with, with AKS, you can also do kind of background jobs if you want. But if it's simple type of background jobs or one-offs, then AKS is a lot more effort to implement than it would be required. So again, kind of depending on the purpose of the background job, you know, you, you can select a different service. You can also put it directly on your Azure Virtual Machine, of course, and run this as a Windows Schedule task or an application that runs continuously listening through a service bus for messages, and, and then you can process it there. So there's a lot of way to do background jobs. Um, but the, the key thing is, uh, whatever you choose, when it runs as a background job, you don't see their message on your screen if you're using a web app or whatever it is, because it's processed by a service on the background, which means you need to handle conflicts. And conflicts will occur. If you design systems for scale uh, and you build enterprise systems, you will have conflicts. Uh, so design your system to, to handle that, uh, which is super important. And again, talking about how you handle that is very specific to, to what purpose you kind of deploy or what service you use and, and how you design it. But keep this in mind, if you design uh, background jobs, whether this is a simple function or web job, design it for conflicts. If you have a, a queue-based trigger and you have 100,000 items throw, thrown into that queue, you can get conflicts if you try to update things in a database from 10 different functions at the same time. So think about that. 
there's also the the point of resiliency, which kind of touches on something else I have on my mind, like with retry guidance and transient faults I want to talk about. But like the resiliency for a background job is also important that if it fails, it needs to be able to pick up where it left or restart the entire job and, and scrap what it was doing. So that's also important things to, to keep in mind. A lot of times I hear people say, I just put a function in the cloud or I put a web job up. Everything seems fine, but it seems fine because maybe you didn't have monitoring on it. You couldn't see the exceptions or there are no exceptions, but it also doesn't process any data. And we see this a lot. This happens a lot when we do code reviews and we, we check out uh, different repositories and you see uh, people write an issue or saying, I have a function, it's triggered every five minutes, but nothing works or it works intermittently because the function was connecting to a database, a SQL server, Azure storage account, whatever it is. And some of, if it processed 1 million requests, maybe 5,000 of those requests failed, but your function did not fail because you didn't throw the exception. You would never know. So design for resiliency, conflicts, um, take into consideration these, these scale and performance considerations. So when you go enterprise or when you go to 100,000 items or like we do, I, I process hundreds of millions of items per week in some of my applications. If I had not built that for redundancy, resiliency, and with you know, handling transient faults, it would be madness. And, and that was a lot of trial and error. But now I know, so I just want to tell you, look into that. If you haven't done it already, look into that. I will also put some good links in the show notes related exactly to these things, because I think this is extremely important from day one when you develop functions, web jobs, Azure Batch, whatever it is that runs in the background that you need to rely on, ensure that you have this covered. Wow, that so was a lot of words, huh? That was a lot of content. That, that, that's great. So, so mentally, I'm 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 juggling with the different options for running my background job. So, the the easiest, uh, lowest friction option seems to be web jobs, and I think we both both agree on that. It's super easy to get started with those, because essentially you can pick up your exe, uh, your your shell scripts, what have you, drop them in a, in a web job, and just have it run. You don't really need to worry about anything. Mm. So if we start with web jobs, uh, then the next option would, would, I would say it's Azure Functions. That's, that's the next logical option. Yep. And, and after Azure Functions, or even before, I would nominate Azure Automation for running your PowerShell workbooks. So yep. that's three, web jobs, Azure Functions, Azure Automation. And then uh, probably Logic Apps, because it's a bit more robust than Azure Functions, and it gives you a bit more this sort of enterprise-level patterns and principles on, on doing try-catches and retries and, and how to handle the different problems you might encounter. And from there, Azure Batch, I haven't really used that in production. Uh, and after Azure Batch, I would add VMs and then AKS. And, and besides that, anything that you can manually build. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good summary. And, and you covered some points I didn't because I'm, I'm thinking, of course, from my, with my de developer tinfoil hat on the head right now. So logic apps and automation, which is PowerShell and, and logic app, which is more you know, intermittent in the middle of like half-baked development, but also a lot more automated. You can do a lot of things 
easier. Um, that's great input. And this is something maybe we should also cover in a different episode. When do you choose to develop something? When do you choose to use the built-in functionalities of, of Azure? Like for Azure automation could probably do a lot of things you today automate using C-sharp. Yep. Because developers know C-sharp and that's the shortest road to success, but there might be an option to use something else. So that might be a different episode because if we dive into that right now, we'll probably be here until next week. Yeah, I, I often find myself itching to, to write code. I open Visual Studio 2019, I start hammering code because I want to try something. And then I realize after I've, I've done like 20 lines, I'm like, hold on, let me check logic apps or, or what have you, if they would have this built in so that I could focus on things that are more relevant for my time. And yeah. quite often I find some predefined action or an API I can use. And that allows me to lift whatever I have to logic apps or an Azure function or a PowerShell script, and then start building something better because I don't have to worry that much about the basics anymore. Makes sense. So I, I think we still have time to talk a bit about caching and, and the different options in Azure for, for doing caching. And oftentimes I see developers embracing Redis, which is available in Azure. But do you use, before we talk more about Redis, do you use anything else? Do you, use your, do you build custom caching or do you use any third-party caching mechanism besides Redis? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so to answer the question, like first and foremost, I do use Redis and I, I use this as the, the hosted option in Azure. But other than that, and before I started using that, I had proprietary cache, distributed caching mechanism that we built because we had a, a specific type of data storage that were handled in a specific way. And, and then we used just that I, I distributed cache uh, mechanism in .NET and it was fairly simple Im implementation, uh, but that was a database-based uh, caching. So whenever we needed something from the cache, we had the key value pairs in a storage table. That was super performant, but with Redis and, and using the Azure Redis, um, what you get is an in-memory representation of your key value pairs. So when you request something from the cache, that's super quick. Um, although other than that, I've used the, the built-in uh, SQL Server distributed caching options. So in my .NET Core projects, I've said, I need to use a distributed cache and I want to point it to this connection string in this SQL server. And then, you know, that's pretty much it. The application would handle the, all the wiring to, to connect to that. Uh, which is similar to how Redis works today, uh, if I use the, the Azure hosted one. Uh, and I think the, the official name is Azure Cache for Redis. Um, and there's a couple of things to, to consider using that also. I love it because it's a, it's a cache server with a distributed cache capability. So... Uh, it also runs in memory, which makes it super quick, uh, which also, of course, comes with the consideration that if you need to cache a lot of data, we're talking gigabytes of data, you also need to think about what kind of tier you deploy your Redis cache on because you can select different tiers. Um, for my purposes, I have cache that is invalidated quite frequently, and I use it because I can get a lot of hits to request data, read operations from a table or from table storage or from SQL Server. And because I know that this data is only updated infrequently, meaning 
every other minute or every five minutes or whatever it is, I know that I don't need to fetch it from the database every second. So if I get 10,000 requests to my API or to my endpoint, I don't need to go to the database 10,000 times and pick out the data because I know it's not going to change in the coming two minutes. So I can invalidate that cache or for, after two minutes, make one request to the database, serve that back, store it in the cache in memory. Next time for the next 9,000 operations, you just fetch it out from the cache. Uh, so it's important to think about, depending on the scale and the characteristics, of course, of your application. Uh, there's something called like a private cache and there's shared cache. And I mean, there's kind of different options for how you want to do caching. And private cache is kind of when you cache on the client or the application. And a shared cache is more like a distributed caching option where uh, you have a, a service hosting the cache for you which I think I, I often recommend, at least when you build microservice applications, because the client is not a single client operating in one context. You might have ACIs, functions, web jobs, uh, AKS clusters, VMs, web applications, whatever it is, distributed working on the same data storage, then you have multiple different clients. So then a, a shared cache is a good option to, to use for that. Um, one of the one of the things that I often realize when I'm working with clients and they might have different partners working on on their solutions on Azure, is that caching, especially with 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 Redis, is just something that everybody automatically agrees on that we need this. Let's enable it. Let's deploy it for production and testing and QA and and all the other environments. But then when you start looking at, at the cost of, of having this, it's not free. Yeah. Admittedly, it starts quite low. But when you scale it up a bit, you might need a bit more storage or you need those specific capabilities. Mm-hmm. It quite easily, easily becomes not, I, I wouldn't say expensive, but it, it becomes something you need to factor in in all of your calculations on, on what our operational expenses are going to be for this even yep. though it's it's mostly an invisible service that you simply need to have and that that's a good point um, so one thing that i that i've done a lot is calculating the cost not only for the cache but pretty much all the services and for some of the large scale applications we've been managing to cut costs a lot because we did implement caching and the caching comes with a cost uh, this is correct but what the caching also did was remove all the um, the overload or the uh, abundance of load on the APIs and the data storage and wherever we had our data. So we did not need a huge tier for APIs. We did not need a huge tier for data storage. So we could lower the price on that end and then go to whatever tier we need for the cache because that was pretty much the the one entry in. So if you use API management or you use an API app, which then uses the cache, that's kind of where you need to handle the scale because the data storage then is pretty much decoupled from if you get 2 million requests a day, you don't get 2 million hits on your data storage because you get one and then you cache it for whatever amount of time and then you get another request when the caching is invalidated. So you need to balance that and that's a very good point you bring up. It is not for free. You don't just click and and go because if you have a lot of data you need to cache, of course, the, the cost will also grow depending on your requirements. Uh, but the cost can also 
uh, decrease in other areas if you offload those services from the, the heavy impact. Um, speaking about Rita specifically, one thing to keep in mind is, um, you know, it has its own security layer. So the underlying Rita server is not exposed to the public network, but it does not have support for identities or any type of authentication other than one global password. So kind of like Azure Storage Account has a access key one and two that has full control to do whatever it wants. The same you have for your Redis cache. You have one password that your application needs, and then you need to connect. Because this is how it's designed right now, uh, and there, at least as far as I know, is no support for um, enabling Azure AD or identities anytime soon, my recommendation is to split up the cache into partitions. Uh, meaning, you know, different Redis services. So if you have super sensitive data, you put that on a separate Redis and you only allow whatever application it is to access that. So you don't use the same global password spread across 10 different applications. If only one background worker needs access to this sensitive data in, in that sensitive cache, only allow this one guy to look into that. Then everything else can go into a general cache. Um, but it also comes with and no built-in encryption. So if you use Redis cache, you cannot tick a box saying, you know what, encrypt everything using this key or whatever. There's no support for that. So you need to encrypt on your client side, on your code. So I do this when I cache things in Redis. I have my proprietary logic with AES 256-bit encryption where I encrypt data before I put the key value pairs into the cache. So if someone gets the global key to the cache, and runs a command to list all key value pairs, it's just gonna be scrambled X in there. Uh, so that's also things to consider because like you say, you, you might not consider the cost, you right click deploy or go to Azure and say, let's use it. And then a couple of lines of code in your app and you're connected, voila, let's go to production. But if your database is encrypted and if you use SQL Server, you might have row level and even column level encryption. If you use storage tables, you might use client envelope techniques to encrypt your data and whatever you have. All the data is encrypted in storage, but when you pull it out and put it into the cache, I see a lot of times people put that as plain text. And that's a problem, especially if you have this high security uh, on the data storage. And then on your cache, you put all the data that is highly sensitive in your databases, you put that in plain text in a Redis cache using that, that only have support for a global master password that you use across all your applications. This is not a good design. So that's also something, something to, to keep in mind. And I would also imagine that, that if you do your own encryption for the data that you store in the cache, and if you have any sort of pre-population or warm-up scripts to populate your cache first, you would then need to implement that same sort of authentication and encryption as part of that warm-up as well. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, that's a good point. And actually, it's it's not something that I had on my mind, but now that you brought it up, this episode is going to be five hours. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is a, a very good point. Uh, so one thing that I did with my APIs where I know my queries, they are vastly different for the type of data that my API returns. So it's very difficult to upfront say, cache everything and then serve from the cache because it's only the first request that then realizes, oh, it's a unique query, cache it. But I did build also like kind of what you mentioned, warm-ups or 
cache preloading, uh, which is not a script. It's actually a function app that hits all the endpoints I have using all the known queries that have historically been executed. So of course that function also need to have the, the encryption mechanism in place because otherwise it's going to put scrambled data into the cache or plain text data into the cache that then the, the other mechanism cannot read. So very good point. Uh, if you pre-populate or you, you kind of warm it up by running the queries and, and if you have proprietary caching, ensure that you have this in all the places. Good stuff. So uh, we went through the auto-scaling, some debates on traditional on-prem development versus modern cloud development. We had a chat on background jobs and now casting considerations. I think we could easily uh, inject 10 more topics, but that might be a time for a different episode. All righty. So yep. as, as is tradition, uh, we have word of the day, both in Swedish and Finnish. So I need to learn more Swedish. What's, what's your word of the day? So in Sweden, there's something that's on like all the media outlets and on everyone's tongue right now. Uh, whether you do it or not, it's it's become a thing, and it's slänga ut julen. And jul means Christmas, so you're throwing out Christmas, which is, I don't know if other countries or other languages use that, but it's it sounds kind of, I don't know, a bit aggressive, like we're done with this, and, yes. you know, I need to restore my house to the default state, just throw out Christmas. And in Swedish, this is slänga ut julen. So the festive season is over. Let me let me try this. Uh, slänga ut julen. That's very good. That's that's pretty, my pretty much a native now. Yeah, <laughs> getting there, getting there. Uh, once more, slänga ut julen. Yeah, sounds good. Alrighty. So so next time I visit Sweden, some some time around Christmas time, I will just go slänga ut julen, and and everybody's like, yeah, he's he's like a real Swede now. Yep. <laughs> You're you're gonna be assimilated if you if you do that. People are gonna think that you're you know been assimilated into the Swedish society and <laughs> you know all the stuff. And I mean, from previous episodes, you also know Skukstukig, which you now also use. Yes. So I mean, that's all you need. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm set. Alrighty, the Finnish version. Uh, so in in Finland, people do a lot of travel within the country as as well as in the neighboring countries, like like uh, Estonia and Sweden, of course. So we've come up, and I think somebody figured this word out in 2019. So we've come up with a word for when you want to travel solo and not really feel too bad about it. So you're not traveling with somebody else, you just go alone. And the Finnish word for this is matkailu. matkailu. Yes, so ma is, is the... Uh, is the country version uh, of of me myself? Uh, if you just have one A with the dots, then it would be the the city version. But this is the country version, and matkailu means traveling, not necessarily within the country, but ma matkailu becomes to travel solo and and not feel too bad about it. That's that's a very good word to know, and I I like the subtle change in. One repeated letter, the same letter repeated twice means country and only one means city. I mean, I wish Swedish was this easy. <laughs> yeah, and, and if, if you have somebody visiting the capital area and they would say ma instead of ma, you can immediately pick up, oh, you're not from here. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. All right, I, I will go and practice this. And until next time, thank you for today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned.